0: You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R.
1: And a very good morning to you, Richard Watts, with you here for another edition of Smart Arts, taking you through till midday today. On the show today, we're going to be talking about independent theatre. We're going to be talking about the reopening of the Astor Theatre. We're going to find out about Love, Love, Love at Red Stitch, which is no, it's not what theatre lovies say to each other when they bump into each other in the foyer. It is the name of a play. Uh, Melbourne Cabaret Festival is on soon. We're going to learn all about the program with its uh, the festival director, David read. We're going to be chatting to one of the dancers from the Australian Ballet about the dream and all that and more, including the next production in this year's MTC Neon Festival of Independent Theatre. All that and more on the show today. Hope you can stick around. But right now, I thought we might kick off with a little bit of Frightened Rabbit. Richard Watts with you here, taking you through until midday today on Smart Arts. And my first guests for the morning have just joined me in the studio. From Dirty Pretty Theatre, we have director Gary Abrahams and actor Simon Caulfield, who join us to talk about their work The Lonely Wolf on as part of the MTC Neon Festival of Independent Theatre. Gentlemen, good morning. Good 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 morning, morning. Richard. That was almost in sync. Well done. (laughs) Um, Now, Gary... I'm going to start with you because the productions that I'm I'm used to from you and from Dirty Pretty Theatre, in terms of theatre, tend to be quite dense adaptations of existing texts. For this work, you're doing dance theatre.
2: I am doing dance theatre, but, you are not
1: a choreographer, are you? I'm not
2: a choreographer. Unless you have
1: a secret side that I've never <laughs> known about. Well,
2: <laughs> I do have a secret side, being that I've always loved dance and I've always loved physical theatre, and I've always kind of had my foot in, in two sort of theatre camps, as it were. I, as you know from my previous work, really love uh, text-based, narrative, character-driven drama, um, the traditional well-made play, as it were. But I've always loved um, dance theatre, physical theatre, the works of Pina Bausch, Belle C de la Vie, uh, deviate physical theatre you know these were my influences kind of growing up as a theatre artist and um getting the opportunity to make a work for the Neon Festival at MTC just seemed like a really great chance to try um, and bring my two loves of two very different theatre worlds together.
1: Well, I'm intrigued to see the result, which is called The Lonely Wolf or An Incomplete Guide for the Unadvanced Soul. Had to make sure I said that correctly. (laughs) Um, Simon, for you as a participant in this production, tell us about... What was the brief you were given when kind of Gary approached you and said, hey, I've got this new show? Were you expecting that he would whack down, a, I don't know, a 120-page script in front of you and say, by the way, it's based on this novel or this film? Or...
3: Um, well, I'm new to Melbourne. I'm from Sydney. So I don't know Gary's previous work as well as the rest of the cast do. <laughs> um, but, no, it was very much pitched to me as uh, loosely devised piece on Steppenwolf, which is a novel I read when I was very young and was obsessed with, so that excited me greatly. Um, But when we did uh, come to rehearsals and there was a script um, full of ideas, that was surprising. Um, I've worked in a way that I haven't worked in before, which is... With a script and then devising around that script and then throwing that out and then bringing it back in. And yeah, it's just up and down. Yeah. I mean,
2: I, I knew around. Simon's work from uh, a company he's uh, involved in up in Sydney called Sands for the Hourglass, which is a very kind of image based sort of physical theatre company. So um, when I heard that Simon was kind of moving down to Melbourne, um, I actually kind of brought him into addition for another show, but that's another story. But I I thought he'd be a really great addition to the team because he's right. I did write a script based on Hermann Hesse's Steppenwolf, but I also wanted to make a devised work that had room for the dancers and the actors to create their own vocabulary. and throw some of my script out, well, actually throw a lot of my script out. So it is part text-based, it's part narrative-driven, but it's also part very kind of abstract dance, physical theatre. And for those who know the novel Steppenwolf, it's a very kind of heady, philosophical, dream-like surreal text. And I think it lends itself really well to this particular
1: form. It's a it's a dreamscape in a way, you know. Well, certainly to, to create that that atmosphere of a dream uh, with the, the erratic imagery that we associate with dream state, it uh, certainly uh, dance theatre seems appropriate. It, I always find it fascinating when, in in film, for example, dreams are presented. Uh as this, as a logical world in which yeah. things happen, whereas kind of like in my dreams, and most of the dreams of most of my friends, there's, they're never that logical. It's kind of like the the fact that you can be walking down a road, which is suddenly a river, and a, you're in a boat, and then the boat is a penguin. And but it feels logical <laughs> when you're in the midst of it, you yeah. know, when you're actually experiencing the dream.
2: But it's a hard... I mean, it's hard. I mean, you know, talking about dreams and trying to stage dreams or film dreams, it's, you know, people have been trying, you know, since the beginning of art, I guess, to represent this hidden inner... Uh, world that exists within us all. Um, Also making this work, I've been very influenced by the writing of uh, Carl Jung and an American philosopher called James Hillman, who's a psychoanalyst, um, a Jungian um, archetypal uh, psychologist. And yeah, I've been very influenced by his sort of writing and his the way he talks about the sort of shadow ego and shadow self and um, superego and all these kind of hidden parts of the human psyche um, that we disallow within our very kind of logic-based, real, uh, practical world.
1: Simon, given that you've not Mm. worked with Gary before, tell us about the process of working in the rehearsal room to distill all of these ideas down Mm -hmm. into the work that people are going to see in the Lawler at the South Bank Theatre from the 11th to the 21st of June.
3: Well, um, coming from my own company and way of working, having a very defined process that uh, I created with my performance partner up in Sydney, um, it was a very different process for me. Uh, It was very much about um, getting on the floor and being given tasks and you had to not question what you were doing and just do it and give it a go and... I always want to know why, and what am I doing, and what's this mean? And, um... It took me about a week to stop asking questions and just do Uh, and then getting into that rhythm of coming in and working and trying to be quick and making quick decisions and realising that Gary will see what he wants to see and choose what he likes and then we'll work on that part and develop further and and that can take up to... We've done like hour-long improvisations that we just keep going until he says stop. Um, And then he'll pick out the bits that are important and we'll rework that and keep Mm. going with that. And then, of course, there's the text layer as well, which... Yeah. Um, you know, I'm still learning my lines for next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's been a very new process for me as well, as you know, with my work. I mean, I tend to work with the script and I'm um, very kind of actor-focused. Um, but I, you know, I was lucky enough to get to work in a show called Complexity of Belonging last year, a uh, co-pro with Chunky Move and Melbourne Theatre Company. Which is uh, playing in Europe, as yeah, we speak. Yeah. actually, I think they opened in Paris um, today or more yeah. yesterday. And, um, you know, that was a sort of dance theatre production which I learned an enormous amount watching the directors, Volk and the choreographer Nook van Dyke work. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, it's, I think it's really important as a new theatre company, independent theatre company, to be able to stretch yourself and take
1: yourself out of your comfort zone. Um and explored new languages. And how new for you is the physical language? Because I'm thinking in terms of a, of a director, you're already used to blocking out the stage, uh, coordinating movement, saying to an actor, no, I want you to hit that point, not that point. So in some ways that is a form of choreography, albeit working with, with actors and words rather than working with dancers yeah. and physical space.
2: It's very different and a large part of the rehearsal process was me learning how to talk to the dancers. I have three fantastic dancers who I found to take part, um, recent graduates of the Victorian College of the Arts and it's a completely different language and being able to sort of create choreographic language with them has been very interesting and fascinating I'm not a choreographer Um, they are uh, choreographers and sort of dancers so we did a lot of sort of improvisations where I would sort of set tasks, they would move to images and from that we would videotape them and then pull together sequences um, of imagery and and movements that we liked and start to shape and I think the, the choreographic language in this work is really interesting um because it's kind of sits between sort of dance and some other kind
1: of thing (laughs) i don't know what but something i'm intrigued i'm certainly i I was already intrigued when i heard that you were doing a dance theater work but now talking about this process i'm i'm intrigued even more simon um given that you are new to melbourne Mm. um Tell us about your impressions of the the Melbourne, I guess, arts ecology. What were you expecting before you moved down, and and what have you actually found, and how have the two compared?
3: Um, look, there, in Sydney, there's a there's a Melbourne wave of taking over the theatre up there a little bit, um, and I wholeheartedly embrace that. Um, not all the people watching the theatre are at the moment, but. Um, I didn't realise until I got down here and started seeing shows just how much theatre is produced down here and how quickly the turnover is and there's so many shows on and there's so many more venues and there just seems to be so many more artists doing, doing, doing and devising and creating and in Sydney it's very much you get your space for four weeks or five weeks, you put on a play that's been done well overseas and people come and see it and... Hopefully it goes well. It's, it's much less devised work, much less um, of this creative hub that Melbourne has, and it's impressive. And intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> it is daunting. I mean, we were just
2: talking earlier, Richard, about just how many shows are kind of going up at the moment and how much good theatre there is to see. And, you know, I spend, um, you know, eight hours a day in the rehearsal room and at least three nights a week going to an opening or seeing another theatre show that's sort of coming on. It's
1: there, re- And there really has been a, a great wave of work. Yeah. I mean, mm. you saw Dream Home last yeah, night, yeah, which is on at uh, Northcote Town Hall. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's just the season has just finished. I went on Tuesday night to the the second last show. And it was Com- packed. It was packed completely. Completely sold out. Word of mouth had clearly got around that this was yeah. a show to see, uh, and there's, um, I just saw a show at, uh, at Theatre Works as well that has also just ended. So, there's, but uh, and, and the neon, the neon festival as well, in full swing. So, full Calamity swing. is on at the moment, which I don't know if either of you have had a chance yeah, to see. Yeah, was yeah. their
2: opening night. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I, I thought it was a flawed work uh, in some ways, as but
2: they all are. I mean, you know, with neon, I think it really kind of provides this really interesting platform to kind of. Uh, Try something out on a very kind of untimid scale. You know, it's a a big space. You do have a lot of support from MTC, but it really is a platform to try something out and fail spectacularly. And I would
1: much rather see a play that is ambitious and bold and maybe not quite... 100 percent successful, rather than mm. a, a safe, bland yeah. success. And I should day. say
2: that I don't think Calamity was a failure in any way. No. To I think Zoe um, is a really kind of a, a ma- like a magnetic performer, and there are so many great ideas in it. And her and Romany have really kind of created moments that I think are startlingly clever.
1: Um, some really, really fantastic moments. And uh, there were that. elements of it I found really quite moving as well, yes. which I was really yes. surprised by. So yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely enjoyed Calamity, which is currently on now as part of the MTC Neon season. And do Pretty theatres. The Lonely Wolf is coming up as the next instalment yes. in the Neon Festival of Independent Theatre at the MTC's South Bank Theatre in the Lawler, running from the 11th until the 21st of June, Tuesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sunday at 4pm. Tickets are just $25 uh, and for more information you can go to mtc.com.au forward slash Neon. We've been talking with director Gary Abrahams and actor Simon Caulfield. Guys, thank you very much for joining us. Thank Thanks so you very much, much. Shit, bye-bye. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts and my next guest for the morning joins us on the line. Uh, Luke Marchant is a dancer with the Australian Ballet and is performing in the company's production of The Dream and Luke I understand for this production you've had to learn a skill which we traditionally associate more with ballerinas rather than with male ballet dancers
4: yeah it's, um, it's definitely something that I never thought that I would be doing um,
1: dancing on point
4: dancing on point you very rarely see men on point so
1: so uh, why have you had to master this new skill for this particular production
4: so it's Um, the production we're doing is The Dream and it's based on Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream and I play the role of Bottom who is um, you know a a rustic kind of guy turned into a a donkey and um, and you know to play a trick on Titania so um, he, he gets turned into a donkey and we have the point shoes on um, to give the illusion of hoofs, so uh, the production is very funny. Uh, it's it's not exactly design. The point shoes aren't designed to be comic themselves. It's just um, a ploy to look more like a donkey. So,
1: but the uh, the I guess the the contrast between what we normally associate uh, with dancers on point, the the delicate physicality of a of a ballerina um, compared to the robust uh, body of a of a male ballet dancer. That's certainly a an amusing contrast. And in a, an early publicity shot, uh, which I think they were your legs, kind of strong, chunky, hairy legs, and yes. then kind of the on point ballet shoes. So uh, a bit of an, a, a fascinating contrast. Tell us about the process of, of learning to dance on point, though, because ballerinas normally start that at about the age of 12.
4: Yes, they do. Uh, it's very funny because I keep saying we're, we've kind of started where you know young girls start at 11 and 12, and where, I mean, we're grown, well, I mean, maybe men but um, in our mid-twenties doing this. And, um, you know, we started uh, very basically uh, just doing rises up through the shoe. And um, another thing we did was literally put the shoes on just to feel the sensation of being up on point because it's a very strange sensation It's for for something that you haven't done before. Um, It feels very high up off the ground. (laughs) Um, And i when i first put the shoes on i i thought it was impossible i just thought this is not going to happen <laughs> but,
1: and you, you have the added complication though is not just dancing on point uh in the dream but also having to wear the donkey head mask when uh, bottom the rude mechanical is is transformed by fairy magic which means you're dancing on point which is difficult and unusual and then you also must have very very restricted sight by having the donkey head on
4: i have to say the Point shoes are very hard but the thing that really gets me is the donkey head um, it, it's hard to explain but I've pretty much got um, these two tiny holes at the end of, of the nose that I can see out of and that's pretty much all the vision that I have so I kind of lose all of my depth perception and um, I can kind of tell where the floor is so <laughs> I, before I go on I, I kind of I shut my eyes and I do a lot of proprioception so I kind of get into my body and, and try and feel where I am because when the, you put the head on, you just you kind of don't know where you are and you lose your balance. So... Um I've, you know, I've had a couple of instances where I've nearly nearly toppled over, but I've held it together,
1: so... As long as you're not accidentally knocking over any of the other performers on stage, no. hopefully you'll be fine.
4: Thankfully, when I'm on point, I'm, most of the time I'm by myself, and then the only other time it slows down and I do a pas de deux with Titania. So it's not so complicated in, in terms of hitting other people. Um, I did trip over the tree in our dress rehearsal <laughs> last night. No, that won't happen again <laughs> now uh, f- I know where it is
1: uh fingers crossed fingers f- crossed exactly no so uh look, the work that you're dancing in as we've said the dream is by uh an adaptation of Shakespeare's yes. uh A Midsummer Night's Dream choreographed by uh Frederick Ashton. Frederick Ashton who uh, and there's two other works that are being presented as part of the dream so two shorter works yes. I understand
4: Yes. Uh, the first work is uh, *Monotones*, um, and it's uh, it's kind of a a, a lunar. A lunar exploration, if you like. So, um, the the dancers are costumed in in all white, and they have white caps on, and and um, it's 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 a very beautiful piece. Um, and you know, Sir Frederick Ashton is one of the the most accomplished and um, famous choreographers of the mid twentieth century. So, um, for us to be doing you know a, a program about uh, about of his works is um, it's quite special. You know, it's and. It, uh, our roots um back back to to britain you know yeah. it, um, kind of t- ties that in and the second is yeah symphonic variations which is a very very difficult piece and um it's yeah it's crazy
1: now, one of the things that fascinates me about the the presentation of this triple bill by the Australian ballets, for people who aren't uh, uh, ballet domains, or uh, I think it's the official phrase, um, uh, people who aren't that familiar with ballet, there's perhaps a perception that ballet is a fairly rigid, unchanging art form that is focused on replicating uh, movements and styles from the late 1800s, the early 1900s. So having something like The Dream, which is really uh, and specifically Specifically the dream itself within the, the triple bill which is showing the way that the form can evolve, that a, a master choreographer can take an existing trick or element or style and flip that on its head by having it danced by a man for example. This really is a, a good indication of the way that ballet is a living and evolving art form.
4: Um, absolutely. I mean uh, we're still we're still doing that today as well you know, we're, we're looking back um, keeping tradition alive it's, it's um, you know, it's it's a hard thing because there's always... There's new choreographers all the time and we com- um, the Australian Ballet Commissions um, new people to create new works for us and to push the boundaries again. So it's, it is it is always evolving. It's it's never stagnant. You know, these production We do, you know, the classic Sleeping Beauty and Swan Lake and The Nutcracker, and that's because, you know, on their own they are incredible, beautiful ballets and, you know, people do want to see them. Um, and at the same time, you know... It, a couple of months after that, we'll do a new contemporary program. So, it, you know, it caters for all audiences and it caters for the changing art forms. So, that's always that's always in our minds. You know, um, not 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 staying rigid because that is a, a valid concern. So, yeah. yeah.
1: The Australian Ballet's The Dream, a triple bill uh, of works choreographed by Sir Frederick Ashton, is on at Art Centre Melbourne in the State Theatre from tonight, from uh, the 4th through to the 13th of June and you can find out more information about the season at australianballet.com.au or at artscentremelbourne.com.au Now Luke, I know you're playing the role of bottom in various nights in the Melbourne season you're not playing that role on opening night tonight, but people can see you performing as bottom on the weekend and a few other the times in the season. Yes. Well, best of luck for the production tonight to you and all of your fellow cast, and uh, I hope it's a tremendous success. Great, thank you so much. Thank you very much for joining us, Luke. Bye. Bye. joining me now in the studio my next guest for the morning is David Reed who is the director uh, festival director of the Melbourne cabaret festival
5: David welcome good morning Richard good morning listeners
1: and uh, a bit of a celebratory week for the cabaret festival because you've uh, just had confirmed after six years of presenting the festival and lobbying and uh, and organizing
5: that uh, you've got some funding yes uh, came as uh, a lovely surprise earlier this week when uh, creative Victoria announced their funding recipients. We've, uh, after six years of waking up grumpy, we've (laughs) finally um, had some success. Yeah, which, what does that mean for people who aren't familiar with the arts
1: funding process? Obviously one of the important things, one of the take-home messages for um, you guys at the Cabaret Festival is that it's a peer-assessed process, so it means that your peers in the arts industry think, yes, this is an important and significant
5: festival and should be supported. Yeah, look, that was was one of the... um Uh, the most, yeah, the the, the most gratifying things we got out of it was having our peers say to us, yeah, we think you're doing good things. That peer assessment process is obviously um, critical and, um, but you you do need to remember that it's a very tough, you're in a tough competition and you do need to stand out amongst your peers. Um, I think it was 76% of applicants didn't receive funding so my my heart goes out to them I I know what it feels like having been there many times before but um, no look what this funding does give us it is breathing space so we can really put our energies into delivering a great festival and um, know that we can support good cabaret performers and deliver some great shows to audiences.
1: And does it also then mean that in future shows we may start seeing more international acts in the Melbourne Cabaret Festival? Because one of the things that your focus has been on has been supporting local cabaret and Australian cabaret.
5: Well, you've got to remember this money that is given to us um, in this particular round is through Victorian taxpayers. So we're most keen to support Victorian performers Um, in this particular funding allocation. So, um, no, I look forward to some fantastic conversations with lots of uh, local cabaret acts. Now, in saying that, it does free up our budget a bit to... Um, encourage international acts as well. So, um, yeah, that's, so next year's going to be an exciting festival, as will this one.
1: Absolutely. Now, before we start talking about this year's program in detail, I just want to step back for a moment and talk about the state of health of Cabaret overall, because mm. uh, your festival was first staged in 2010. Uh Adelaide Cabaret Festival is now in its 15th year. The Queensland Cabaret Festival is now
5: in its second year, but it was previously uh, the Brisbane Cabaret yeah, Festival. Yeah, their lineage actually goes back 16 years. He so the yeah. first off the rank. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: we've now got, uh, uh, there's a Ballarat Cabaret Festival. Uh, there's a, a big cabaret focus now, a, almost a festival within a festival down in Hobart at the Festival of Voices. Uh, yep. Cabaret has really, over the last uh, decade and a half, has really grown Significantly, why?
5: Well, I think one you've you've flagged one of the reasons, and um, festivals itself uh, is one of those reasons. Um, particularly fringe festivals like Melbourne Fringe, uh, Adelaide Fringe, Perth Fringe, all have huge cabaret components um, that grow year on year. Um, even if you think about Adelaide Cabaret Festival, they have their own Adelaide Fringe Cabaret Festival. So it's um, it it's it, it created circuits around Australia of where performers can tour their work Um, and we found particularly in Melbourne because we've got strong comedy, theatre and uh, music scenes that there's a lot of performers from those scenes that then want to try out cabaret so um, it's really exciting to see the growth
1: it's certainly something that's fascinated me watching uh, over the last decade as, uh, I don't know, the number of pages uh, dedicated to Cabaret and say the <laughs> Melbourne Fringe program grow from six or seven shows to six or seven pages. Yeah, So absolutely. it's great to see, which means then, of course, in programming the 2015 Melbourne Cabaret Festival, you've uh, got a lot of artists to draw from. And this year you've done something mm. which is potentially fairly risky Is and you've programmed works that haven't appeared in the Cabaret festival over the last three years so a lot of artists that people may not be familiar with and may not have the the pull of say putting in somebody like Geraldine Quinn who is an established performer with an established audience
5: yeah and um look we decided after last year after our fifth festival um that we were starting to uh repeat some performers um, there may be new shows, but we were repeating. So the same faces were popping up year on year. And we think for any festival, that's a bit of a risk. So we decided to keep it fresh and um, took a big risk and said, uh, uh, said, if you've been in the festival the last three years, um, we love you, but let's have a little rest. And um, we went out all across Australia seeking uh, brand new acts that had never been on our festival stages. So it means that we're um, now uh, liaising with um, 30 brand-new shows never seen before in Melbourne, that we've never actually worked with any of those performers before. There's one or two exceptions, but um, largely we've never worked with these performers before. Some call that brave. <laughs> um, Some may call it foolhardy. <laughs> but, you know, you've, you've got to keep it exciting, and that's what we're trying to do this year. Now, it kicks off with a gala. Every, every good
1: festival needs a, a big opening night party of one kind or another, and the opening gala for the Melbourne Cabaret Festival obviously uh, kicks things off with a bang, but then also serves to show the audience a sampler of what's on offer elsewhere in the program, so they can go, oh, I liked that, I'm going to go and book and see that show.
5: Yeah, and the other exciting thing about our opening gala is that it's in the brand new Alex Theatre in in Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. Which
1: used to be the George Cinema, is that Yes,
5: yes. So they have um, undergone a big renovation, and we are the first... There's been productions in there over the last few months, but we are the first one to use multiple spaces within Alex Theatre. So, um, really exciting. We've got Rob Mills coming to host the opening gala as well. Uh,
1: now, Rob Mills, people may know from uh, a brief fling with uh, an American <laughs> celebrity, or they may know him uh, from uh, winning one of those Australia's Got Talent style shows. I can't remember which one it was. The thing I like about his show is that um, it's called Rob Mills is. Surprisingly good. So he's clearly got a sense of humour because he's quoting kind of those
5: kind of reviews. Oh, Rob Mills performed. He was surprisingly good for somebody who dated a celebrity, etc., yes. etc. Et it's happened so many times. He's, um, uh, I guess, it's coming from that music contestant background that he suddenly appears in music theatres. And you're right, it happens in so many of his reviews. He's surprisingly good. And guess what? He is. <laughs> um, so he's he's got a. A, a ripper band and um is touring that show around the country and we're we're lucky to have him in the festival now another show that caught my eye again just because of the humor of the title of
1: it a show that's called I'm sick to death of hearing about the Weimar Republic now yes. for anybody who is a cabaret aficionado uh, the Weimar era and the ca- uh, of cabaret in uh, Germany uh, is held up as this golden age of dark satirical political uh, cabaret so to have someone come out and just say oh, I'm so sick of hearing about it automatically kind of ticked boxes for me and said, I'm yep.
5: intrigued, I want to know more. And, and the um, I know this is radio, but the image for this show is a great one. It's uh, Peter J Casey wielding an axe about to take it to the um, stereotypical cabaret chair. Um, so, yes, he's aiming to break down the stereotypes, um, which is what, what we like about um, cabaret that Peter delivers. Uh, he comes from Canberra and uh, he's a great singer-songwriter.
1: Now, obviously, there, as we said, there are going to be new artists in the Cabaret Festival program who people don't know, new artists and young
5: artists. But the flip side of that is you've got an 80-year-old <laughs> cabaret artist as well. Yes, uh, Lynn Ruth Miller is coming all the way from London, so there you go. She's one of our international artists. She's going to be performing at the Butterfly Club. Um, she's our only octogenarian in the festival, but... Uh, She's also new to cabaret, relatively new. She's only been doing it in the last few years, so um, it's... Goes to show, it's never too old. Yeah. Now, cabaret is very much an art form
1: which is about intimacy and about storytelling. Yes. Uh, one of the, the stories that's being told this year uh, is the story of Lionel Bart, who people may know as the comp- composer of uh, of Oliver, the that classic musical that high schools are perennially performing. Hell, I performed in it back in in the 80s. Um, So tell us about this particular work, Reviewing the Situation, which takes its name from a song from Oliver.
5: Yeah, so this stars uh, Phil Scott, um, who some may remember from the Wharf Review, and he's also written for um, dozens of television programs. Um, Phil's coming to us from from Sydney. But Lionel Bart was once Britain's most celebrated composer. Um, He wrote the iconic musical Oliver, um, he's He parted with the greats, with Noel Coward, Rudolf Nureyev, and the Beatles, so he's uh, he's got some great stories to tell.
1: Oh, that will be an intriguing
5: one to see because mm. yeah, that, that art of telling a story is so much at the heart of
1: Cabaret. Anybody can get up and sing a few songs, but finding a way to link songs together, to find a narrative, to connect them is one of the real skills of the art form.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've got people like, um, uh, let's see, we've got people like Ruth Wilkin who's... Uh, own cabaret is about that um, topic so she's decided that she doesn't have a story herself to tell so she's gone out to um, tell other people's stories Um, uh, so she's on a chapel off chapel in the first week of the festival.
1: Now in terms of the festival itself Adelaide Cabaret Festival um, has an advantage in that all of its shows are Uh, concentrated within the Adelaide Festival Centre. So you've essentially got... You just go to one place to see cabaret. Your festival is a little bit more spread out across different venues. Is that a challenge or is that an advantage
5: because it means that you're drawing on different locales and the audience is already familiar with those spaces? Well, it means that we can program different styles of shows because we're in different size... Theaters, so Butterfly Club with 70 seater, the Melbourne Spiegel Tent. Um, Obviously, we can um, have an aerial artist, um, aerial artist who sings while she's on 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 the aerial equipment. Um, And at the chapel, we can um, reinvent their space. So instead of there being rake seating, we're bringing in tables and chairs and having a nice cabaret salon style. Um, So the different spaces means that we can program different styles of cabaret within each space.
1: And different styles of cabaret ranging from, as we've heard, uh, songs mocking the the Weimar era. Uh, Then you've got um, uh, Kai Smythe uh, performing Hairy Soul Man, which I saw at Fringe uh, a little while ago, backed by an eight piece funk band, which Mm -hmm. is kind of uh, um, a little bit different from the the, the smooth crooning cabaret style some
5: may be used to. Absolutely. And and then we've got. uh, Kelly Orty's coming to perform for us as well in a new show. We've never worked with Kelly before, so that's going to be exciting, called Backwards in High Heels. We've got, um, if you like your drag, we've got Queens of the City coming to us. whole different... I guess what we're, what we're getting across here is there's a whole lot of different um, influences. Um, so if you like your jazz as a chauffeur, if you like your opera... There's um, a show called Under the Covers. So lots of different influences across the program. Now, you mentioned jazz. That's one of the shows I'm really intrigued to see. It's coming over from Perth, where it
1: uh, picked up the uh, Best Cabaret Award at the 2015 Fringe World, uh, uh, a show celebrating the jazz era uh, called Speak
5: Easy. Yes, um, and they've actually got a couple of international performers with them as well. It's with a nine-piece um, it's called the Perth Cabaret Collective with two international guest artists, Matt Jode from New York and James Cross from Tokyo. Uh, so we're very much looking forward to just relaxing, kicking back, and drinking up with that show.
1: Melbourne Cabaret Festival is running from the 18th until the 28th of June at venues across Melbourne. Tickets from just $23, and you can book at melbournecabaret.com. I highly recommend you do. There are some great shows in the festival. This and take a punt on the artists you don't know, which is going to be quite a few of them, I suspect, <laughs> for quite a few people who are attending the festival. David Reid, thank you very much for joining us. I thank hope you, it's a, a great festival. Thank you. Just before I play another track, I to let you know coming up in about eight minutes time, we're going to be chatting with uh, the manager of the Astor Theatre, Zach Hepburn. The Astor is reopening to the public on the 7th of June. So we're going to find out all about Zach's plans for the theatre, what the programme's like. Um, whether running his own cinema has always been his dream job, I suspect it has been, given what I know about his love of film. Then a little bit later on, Love, Love, Love at Red Stitch Actors Theatre. We're going to be talking to Ella Caldwell, who's performing in the show, uh, who is also the artistic director at Red Stitch. But before I move on, I wanted to remind you, if you are a passionate devotee of the arts, uh, whether you're somebody who loves reading books, loves going to the cinema, loves music. New Australian films, or, or shows on TV, or theatre, independent theatre, visual art, whatever art form you enjoy, you may have heard. Uh, it's certainly been mentioned on this show once or twice over the last couple of weeks that the Federal Minister for the Arts, Senator George Brandis, has uh, removed a large sum of money from uh, the Australia Council, where it is uh, funded through peer assessment at arm's length from government process. He's taken money from the Australia Council, a significant amount. Uh, and uh, created his own fund uh, to be... Uh, we, we still don't know whether the minister will be personally approving and uh, deciding who gets funding and who doesn't because he didn't consult anybody. He hasn't hadn't discussed it with anybody. There was no planning and foresight as to how this process would work. He's just set up his own uh, national program for excellence in the arts. So there's a, a lot of concern about this for a, a number of reasons, one of them being that the loss of funding to the Australia Council means it's had to suspend the June funding round, axe a number of internationally significant programs such as artistic residencies for visual artists overseas. It's going to mean that because Senator Brandis has specified that the major performing arts companies are insulated from these cuts, it means that the all the the impact of this is going to be borne by independent artists and the small to medium sector. So that means that a range of nationally significant companies such as Chunky Move, Australian Dance Theatre uh, and others who are currently performing in Paris. Stephanie Lake also opened a show there last night. Um, so their shows are at risk. uh An internationally recognised circus company like Circa, who are currently performing in London, Uh, their funding is going to be at risk. Uh, Your local independent theatre company staging works at somewhere like La Mama, their funding is going to be at risk because... There's basically been a big chunk of money taken out of the pot. So if you're concerned about this, then please sign the petition hosted by Australian Unions Overland and Theatre Network Victoria. Uh, the petition is called Australians for Artistic Freedom, uh, and you can find it at Australianunions.org.au forward slash Australians underscore four underscore artistic underscore freedom, or just Google Australians for Artistic Freedom petition. Senator Brandis has spoken in the past about how much he values the audience. Um, So if you are an audience, if you are part of the audience who attend theatre, who go to galleries, then let him know how you feel about these cuts to the Australia Council and the impact that they will have on the independent art sector in Australia. End of rant. We're going to hear a track now from Einstutz and the Neubolten. Um... I'm sure that there are some people who at listening at the moment whose lives have been transformed by some other experience such as seeing a classic film at the Astor theater for the for the first time maybe it was where you first saw I don't know something uh, classic and from the film noir era or maybe it's where you first saw Apocalypse now in glorious 70 millimeter projection or maybe it's where you've more recently seen uh, some kind of uh, delightful double bill of Pixar films or uh, something along those lines it's a, it's a a cinema which has changed people's lives. There was a a lot of distress and dismay when it seemed like we may lose it. But, uh, the Astor is back. It is a reopening to the public on the 7th of June and its cinema manager Zach Hepburn joins us in the studio now. Zach, good morning. Good morning, Richard. When did you first visit the Astor?
0: I went as a, uh, a young boy, probably when I was about oh, eight or nine, and I saw uh, The Beatles Yellow Submarine on glorious 35mm and uh, it was that, that kind of period in my life where I was you know, really into movies and I was really into different sort of films and uh, seeing that On the big screen with that kind of sound and being introduced to the Beatles that sort of way was just you know an absolute mind warp and I you know was taken on a journey. I think you know great films are like great journeys and uh, for me a a great cinema is the sort of you know vessel to to access those journeys. And um, did you ever expect that that journey would end up
1: with you running a cinema?
0: um, I always wanted to work in the film industry. Um, Being able to actually manage something like the Astor is you know a dream come true really, and being able to be involved. In preserving that legacy that um, the previous operator George Florence created uh, for Melbourne, as you mentioned in your introduction, everyone has an Aster story. Uh, I have one. I'm sure you have one, and I'm sure many listeners do. Um, to be able to be part of that history and, and part of that story is, you know, a great honour, and um, you know, I think a really unique opportunity that I was so honoured to be involved with. So.
1: Palace Cinemas have taken over the operation of the Astor. They've been in discussion uh, for several months about that process. Mm-hmm. There was a time where it seemed like uh, Melbourne may lose the Aster altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of argy-bargy behind the scenes. Some people know more than others. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a, a, a quick summary of why there was so much fuss and bother and stress about what was happening with the Aster?
0: You know, I think it's just one of those things where you had um, you know a group of people uh, who were very passionate and they were very passionate uh, about different things and it just came to an impasse uh, and uh, some new sort of direction was needed and I think that's something that PAL Cinemas and I are really, really excited about being involved with is giving the venue a, a bit of a breath of fresh air and, and taking it on to its, its next phase of its uh, of its life. I mean the, the, the theatre has had so many different sort of phases throughout its period. You know, it started out as a stables and then it was the Rex Theatre and now it was the Astor Theatre, so that location in, in, in St Kilda has had such a fertile sort of history, and and, and being able to take this into the next phase is is um, an amazing undertaking. It's you know not without any sort of um, you know it's a big job to say the least. So It's not with any sort of you know hesitation that we do it, but it's um it's something to be really really excited about, and um you know we we we've been very. Um, Uh, Open with uh, with George, who was the 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 previous manager, as I mentioned, and you know that was basically. His life, you know, the Astor Theatre was his life's work, and for us to be able to honour that and and also have him involved, um, he's um, very much a, a, a presence. Uh, you know, he's very much welcome throughout the cinema, and he's been helping us uh, a lot throughout this sort of transitional period. Um, it has been a great uh, opportunity to preserve his legacy and, and his passion. Now, one of his passions
1: has been for showing films on film, mm-hmm. so on thirty five mm for example, yeah. or on on seventy millimeter. When it comes to some of the your, your epics, yeah. uh, so.